Come all you poor workers, good new to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are this you is Rights, Rorts and Rants, where we talk about your rights, how they're rorted, and rant about what you can do about it. Presented by Blue Mountains Unions and Community, also known as the Blue Mountains Unions Council. Do you think Labor will undo those, or do you think Labor will be any different? Um, I <laughs> think Tanya Plibersek, you were saying, yeah. you know, has, is, will support that. So, you know, I want to be clear that I think, you know, I'm looking forward to getting rid of the Liberal government, and I think the Labor Party will improve, um, you know the lives of ordinary people. They've said they'll bring back penalty rates, um, they'll get rid of the ABCC, but I'm not under any illusions that they're going to repeal the anti-strike laws and, in fact, they wrote many of those laws. Like, Mm. the Fair Work Act is um, Mm. the act that we... the laws that we deal with at the moment, they introduced that in the previous Mm. Rudd-Gillard government in 2009. The Fair Work Commission, many of the commissioners were... you know, Labor Party appointees. Um, there was the Labor Party under Hawke and Keating that introduced enterprise bargaining, which specifies that That's right. that striking is now only legal in a protected period while you're going from one agreement mm. to another, um, which, you know, they call it protected action, but the truth of what happened is that it, it dramatically outlawed striking at any other time, which mm. is you know, most of the time. (laughs) So I think it is going to take a fight. Um, Brendan O'Connor, the Industrial Shadow Minister, has said, you know, we will not be implementing um, the unlimited right to strike. And as you said, Tanya Plibersek also defended the the fines um, and said that unions like the CFMU should face the full force of the law. Those fines really hamper unions' um, willingness and ability to take to take action. So it's going to take a fight, and we have to um, we have to prepare for that fight and, and meet it head on. Good evening. I'm Deborah Smith. And that was Irma Dell. We just you just heard then. Irma spoke at a politics in the pub in February about the right to strike. We're going to have more from Irma later on in the show, and we're also going to have some some of the recording from the politics in the pub we had in August last year about the train strike. So Alex Classens, who's the New South Wales Secretary of the Rail Train Rail Tram and Bus Union in New South Wales. He spoke at that event and he'll give a bit of background about that's that proposed strike and how it was suspended. So the big news of the day, of course, is that the Prime Minister has called the election for, for Saturday the 18th of May. Members of Blue Mountains Unions and Community belong to different political parties and some of us don't belong to any party But despite that, we do have one goal in common, and that's to change the government so we can change the rules. The time now is 
four minutes past eight. The weather today at the moment, it's 11 degrees. Tomorrow, it will range from seven degrees to 18 degrees, so they tell us, partly cloudy with a 20% chance of rain. Tonight in Katoomba, there's going to be roadworks and the in the westbound lane of the highway from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock and that's going to continue every night until the 18th of April. And for people catching trains, if you need a lift and you can't manage the stairs, the Strathfield lifts are out on platforms 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. And with the fire, there's a low to moderate risk of fire, so there's no fire ban. Now, we don't want to be accused of being unbalanced. Some people might accuse us of being lefties. So tonight we have a special guest. He's a fanboy of Gladys Spiridiklian, and he'll share his views on the election of New South Wales. And uh, he he's only calls himself Bruiser. So uh, it is a satire alert. So some people don't get satire. I hope you, hope you do. So he's Bruiser. Come on, Bruiser, where are you? What are you doing? I'm sorry about this. We'll try again. We're having a little bit of trouble with our um, equipment here. So we'll need you to be patient. Maybe we scared Bruiser off. Dear Gladys, congratulations on your win. Poor old Daly didn't stand a chance, did he? Won't you let loose the dirt file? In politics, like footy, timing's everything. So even though you knew months ago Daly had been mouthing off about Asians with PhDs coming into Sydney and pinching Aussie jobs, you kept stum, told the boys with the dirt file to just sit on it until, until, well, until the last week of the campaign to cause maximum damage. Bye-bye, Daly. Silly bugger, that Daly. Thankfully, you missed the real story. Our bosses just love having foreign workers over here in Sydney. Can't get enough of them, because most of them have no bloody idea about their rights. So much easier to screw them, pay them below the minimum wage, give them ship working conditions... And if ever they do make a squeak, tell them you'll be on the phone to Dutton about their visas. So, a brilliant campaign, Gladys. Better still was what you didn't say. I bet those poor bastards in the Department of Environment had no idea that once you'd won the election, you'd abolish the whole department. And why would they? Because during the election campaign, you never mentioned it. Not once. Anyway... Who needs the bloody environment? Too much red tape. Only gets in the way of planning and industry. And wasn't that another masterstroke? Burying the environment in a little office somewhere in the bowels of your new super-ministry called, wait for it, planning and industry. Environment, my ass. Soon, the mountains will be alive with the sound of hundreds of trucks dumping Sydney's waste. The constant throb of choppers on joy flights and the drowning of another valley to raise that damn wall. Music to my ears, gladdy babes. Yours ever so respectfully, Bruiser. I'm Troy. At 25, life was great. I played sport and had a great social life. 
But then I found out I was at risk of dying from chronic kidney disease. Most people don't know that you can lose 90% of kidney function without any symptoms. I didn't. 18 years later, there's no sport, no relationships, and I can't work. Don't be blind to kidney disease. Find out if you're at risk by taking the simple online kidney risk test at kidney.org.au. So I'm speaking with Erma Dahl, is that right? Is yep. That right pronunciation. And Erma, just a little bit of background. Um, you were, when Norm introduced you, you've been studying political economy at Sydney Uni, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did uh, study at Sydney Uni, studied political economy, um, graduated, and a few years later I got a job down at Port Botany mm-hmm. on the docks down there, so mm-hmm. now I'm a wharfie. Um, yeah, with the help of the MUA, that was pushing to get more women employed down there. So yeah. I got uh, involved in student politics, um, was active around climate change, around refugee rights, and um, against cuts to the university, and I guess through all that I've made a lot of links with the Maritime Union who've always been very, very supportive of progressive struggles. You know, we had a campaign to save the art school and they sent down a contingent. I always saw their flags flying at the rallies. And then in 2015, half of their workforce at Hutchinson Ports was sacked by text message. Mm -hmm. So um, as a student activist, I also went down to the picket lines with other students to show support. We raised money. We took Wharfies back to campus to organise. So I guess I got to know people, um, fell in love with the union, and I may have graduated from Sydney Uni, but the truth is an arts degree also gives you limited options in the labour market. A lot of people of your age group say union issues don't mean a lot to them because they're in casual work, mainly Mm. hospitality. So do you have any kind of ideas for that, for getting those people involved? Yeah, I worked in many casual jobs on many in many ununionized workplaces. My first union job was uh, working after I graduated, I taught for a little while at Sydney Uni and then this job with, at, on the wharfs is my first permanent job with any rights that mm-hmm. come with permanency, like sick leave, annual leave. So it's definitely experience of young people not to have permanent work and not to be in unionised jobs. Um, but I think that the important... I think the onus is basically on the union movement to go out. You know, you can't expect people to join a union movement they don't know about, that they don't have any experience of. It's, it's the job of the union movement, I think, to both find a way to meet those young people, but more importantly to find a way to organise that's going to inspire them, that's going to make them feel like it's relevant, that it can actually win things, that it's involved in the day-to-day struggles that that matter to them. And um, you know, I just spoke at the meeting and gave the example of at Sydney University, there is a huge workforce of casual mm. members. It's 
higher education is the second most casualised industry after hospitality. Many of those workers are not in the union. But when the bargaining campaign was on and there was, um, you know, seven days of strike action and there were demands about getting casual jobs converted to permanent roles, that's when the union recruited um, 300 people. So I think it's sort of, you know, when you fight, you grow. When you show your strength, you pull people behind you. I think that's the kind of strategy that the union movement needs to build its membership. Yeah. And what about the idea of collective action? Look, I mean, I when I arrived at uni, I had, you know, ideas in my head about the 60s and the 70s and what to expect at uni. Like, it may, we may not be at the peak of, um, you know, the peak of strike action and social movements, but I think, you know, people remember going down to the demonstrations, the Your Rights at Work demonstration. Um, you know, you hear hear stories. I don't think it... You look overseas and you see mm. the French yes. <laughs> yellow vest <laughs> yes, movement yes. fighting. Yeah, there was yeah. the Arab Spring yes, not right. that long ago. Uh, like, you know, even what's happening at the moment around the uh, refugee campaign, I think mm. people, you know, know that there was a movement that brought out, you know, thousands of people mm. at the Palm Sunday. Teachers have walked off the job. Like, these things seep through in all different... Ways and and you know people do have an idea of that. So you know a lot of people feel that you know at some point you've got to draw the line. At some point you've got to fight and get involved. And I got a copy of the Economist the other day. It was talking about the new millennials uh, movement for socialism. So you know that's what they think young people are thinking about. Yes. Yeah. No. It seems to be a global phenomenon mm. as well. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to the program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting to the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this service. Copies of the codes are available from the Community Broadcasting Association website www.cbaa.org.au As Erima said earlier, industrial action can only be taken in very limited circumstances and this severely limits unions and workers' ability to negotiate good paying conditions. So what is industrial action and what are the limitations? I recommend that you check the Fair Work website for detailed information, but I'll give you a rough explanation now. Under the Fair Work Act, industrial action taken by workers includes performing work differently to the usual, for example, deliberately going slowly, or adopting a practice that restricts, limits or delays the performance of work, a ban, a limitation or restriction by workers on performing or accepting work, for example, an overtime ban, or a refusal to attend work. So that would be a strike. I think most people are pretty clear about what a strike is, walking off the job. What may not be so well known is that employers can also take industrial action, and this is called a lockout. Workers are literally locked out of their employment and can be starved into submission. You may recall a few years ago when Alan Joyce grounded Qantas flights all over the world 
affecting up to 80,000 passengers on the first day alone. Qantas was negotiating new enterprise bargaining agreements with three unions. He grounded international and domestic flights all over the world so he could lock out about 3,000 union members who only work for the domestic arm of the service. Just recently, Port Kemble workers were locked out of their work without pay for 50 days. There are restrictions on when industrial action can be taken and who can take it. Workers and employers can only take industrial action when they're negotiating on a proposed enterprise agreement. And that agreement is not a Greenfields agreement or a multi-enterprise agreement. That's when workers and employers are negotiating new pay and conditions within their workplace. It can only be workers who are in the union negotiating with the employer who can take industrial action. That's called protected action. The main importance of industrial action being protected is that it gives immunity from civil liability under state or territory law. If unprotected action is taken, then workers and unions are liable for huge fines. Employers can also be fined, but unions and workers seem to be the main targets. Up to $63,000 for a corporation or union and $12,600 for an individual. And that's only fines under fair work. There's also the Australian Building and Construction Commission, or the ABCC. As the name implies, this is supposed to target unions and workers in building and construction, or so you would think. Just last week, the ABCC launched action against the Australian Workers' Union and 53 of their members in the manufacturing industry for attending a rally last year. This could mean fines of $42,000 for each of those 53 individuals. You have to wonder why an organisation that is supposedly tasked with cleaning up the construction industry is going after people in the manufacturing sector. You also have to wonder why they do this a week before a Change the Rules rally and that the union that they're targeting is the one pursuing Michaelia Cash in court at the moment. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution It sounds Who are people gonna rise up and get their share? Gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 Talking about a revolution. 
Tracy Chapman singing Talk About a Revolution. Uh, Alex Classens, who's Secretary of the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, spoke in August at a politics in the pub about the Rail Workers Industrial Action that was suspended by Fair, the Fair Work Commission. So I'm just going to play his speech now, um, and it's Norm Short who's introducing him. The conversation today will be about the right to strike. It seems to me, after the last week, there's two laws in this country. If you're a union, you can't strike. If you're the LNP, you can walk out of Parliament and just, just leave the country to anyone. But, uh, I mean, you've got to take the opportunity for that, I'm sure. But, you know, if you look at the laws with right to, rights to strike, what happened with the RTBU, um, you know, the Commission's um, sat and made a decision in in a matter of hours, and yet we have people that have been locked out by SA for over a year, and where's the, the Fair Work Commission for that? So Alex is going to talk about, um, Alex is from the RTBU, he's the Secretary of the State RTBU, he's a long-time rail person. Alex not only does RTBU stuff, but he does stuff for when we're doing the hospitals, privatisation of hospitals, all sorts of things. He, he's very active within the union movement. So, Alex Spicer. Oh, so, I guess I want to talk to you about that, uh, the loss of the right to strike, of course, which, you know, sort of hurt us a lot, being that we are a union that's been fairly active for many, many years. And uh, we were able to, once before, in 2005, actually, uh, we were able to stop them from cancelling our strike action down in Victoria where the, our trammies were going to go out on strike and uh, at that time we did everything the same as we did this time. We dotted our eyes and crossed our T's but on this occasion of course we were stopped from being able to take the industrial action. And like Norm has already said, you know, it's interesting this week, given the week they had in Canberra where, you know, the Liberal Party politicians all felt that they could just walk out and have a day off which is very frustrating for all of us, of course, because they are the people that are supposed to be in there looking after us. But like I said, quite clearly, the rules are broken, and you're going to hear it from us time and time again, saying that the rules are broken and the right to strike is nearly dead in, in Australia. And certainly Sydney and New South Wales trains, railway workers were living proof of that. You'll remember the, the headlines earlier this year, in February, of course, when... After months and months of negotiations, we finally got to a point where we just had to take the industrial action. We had a very arrogant minister who just wasn't interested in hearing what we had to say. He didn't even want to listen to us about his horrible timetable he was going to implement. And so we started by saying, look, we're going to start to do some industrial action. And we started fairly meekly at that point. It was a badge day. 
Uh, we're just walking around wearing a badge for, for heaven's sake. Uh, and then we were going to stop working overtime, which in normal circumstances, you know, shouldn't actually cause a massive drama in any organisation because organisations shouldn't be geared around having to force people to work overtime. On the day that our overtime ban actually kicked in, but actually before the 24-hour strike action, the government dragged us straight into the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission, a guy called Hamburger, made the decision that we were to suspend our action for six weeks. He could have actually cancelled the action altogether, but he chose not to do that. He basically said, you're going to have six weeks of suspension and you've now got to go back to the negotiating table, effectively with our hands tied behind our backs. So it was, of course, in that moment that we realised that the game had to change forever. And it was in that moment that it was quite clear to all of us that the rules were definitely broken. After an almighty battle, of course, that dominated headlines for weeks and revealed the failings of our transport system and our transport minister uh, for the members, and we finally ended up getting a reasonable result. And we did actually manage to smash the government's 2.5% wages cap. And we also managed to maintain all of our working conditions. And we were able to get there, despite the odds being heavily stacked against us. And we only got there because we actually had the support of the commuters. The community was on our side. At one point, there was a poll done by Channel 7, and believe that as you like, but. 70% of the people out there were actually supporting our cause. And of course, we also had a workforce that just refused to lie down. So Sydney Trains and New South Wales Trains knew that the industrial system was working against us, and we also knew that our public transport system really relied on us, right? Uh, we know that we've got a job which really requires us to be able to perform at our best to make sure we actually get people to the places they need to be. Uh, and we got our outcome despite of our industrial system, not because of it. To understand the entire situation, it does help to have some background to this. The New South Wales railways have been attacked by the current New South Wales Conservative Government for many years, but particularly since our current Transport Minister, Andrew Colston, took over. The Transport Minister, of course, has overseen the axing of jobs, the axing of services, the privatisation of elements of our commuter network. And on top of that, he's actually taken every opportunity he can to publicly ridicule the hard-working men and women that do our railway and our transport systems, including our buses and our light rail. But there are many of us, of course, as you might have worked out by now, that actually think that ours is just more than a job. It's a passion, it's a lifestyle, and many of us are quite proud of the job that we do every day. So through all of that, through all of the job cuts and the attacks on the quality of our services, we continued to do whatever it was that we could to make sure the system kept running and we kept delivering the service. We even did everything we could to try and make that horrible timetable work, despite the fact that we all knew, even at that point in time, we were over 100 train drivers short, not to mention all the other staff that was necessary to, to run that extra timetable. But we did everything we could to keep it going. So there's the scene. Uh, workers have been stretched to the absolute capacity. We're trying to manage an unmanageable timetable on top of all the other cuts that we'd already had to endure. Then at the same time as Andrew Constance's timetable was falling apart, uh, the negotiations, of course, for the new Enterprise Agreement also fell out of it. As we know, the negotiations for the Enterprise Agreement covered some 9,000-odd Sydney and New South Wales trained workers. And it had actually started some seven months earlier. 
so even before anybody in the public knew about it, we'd been trying to negotiate a deal in all that time. And for months we sat in rooms with management armed with a list of conditions that our members had told us they clearly wanted and were reported to them. And we went over all the details and we went through all the stuff that management just kept sitting there saying, there's nothing there for you, we can't agree to anything. And so effectively we knew for a long time that we weren't actually negotiating with people that could make a decision. We were effectively trying to negotiate with hands tied around our back at that point uh, where the Minister and Treasury were actually making all the decisions and nobody at the negotiating table could actually make a decision for us. So every meeting we went to, we went prepared and willing to negotiate in good faith, and at every meeting we were met by that refusal to move on any of the key conditions. And in all that time, we never heard once from that minister, that guy who likes to call himself the Transport Minister but wouldn't even know what it was to use our system. We know for a fact that in all that time, I kept saying we need to have a key decision-maker at this table, if the minister doesn't want to get here, send somebody that can make a decision. And the first time I actually got to hear from Andrew Constance was the day that we actually stood up there and told the people of New South Wales that we were going to take a 24-hour strike action. And it was on that day that my phone went in my pocket and I got this text message from this guy that says, Hi, it's Andrew here. My door is open for you. Now, I won't tell you what I was thinking at the time because I was having horrible thoughts. But I've learned a few things over the years and I decided that I wasn't going to respond to that straight away and I would go back to addressing the media. And of course we all know what happened, uh, you know, within hours of him sending that text message. That text message ended up on the front page of the Andrew Clunnell's, uh, who's a mate of his, who actually posted that out there for to tell the world that Alex had refused the meeting. So those are the sort of games that were being played and again very disappointing because I believe that our union has always been one of those unions that always put ourselves out there for anybody that wants to come and have the conversation. And, uh, you know, it was disappointing to have the Transport Minister of the day use us in that particular fashion. So, despite being given every conceivable opportunity to negotiate a fair agreement, the management just continued to refuse to, to do anything. So we had to start the process of taking action. And like I said, we started with a badge day, we moved to a an overtime ban and like I've already said you know you shouldn't have to be forced to work overtime to maintain a normal service uh, so quite clearly that showed the reliance of the service was on the goodwill of the workers and so as soon as we did that we knew straight away that we, they were in trouble and they already started cancelling trains and moving to a weekend time table. As we know I, I made the announcement that we were going to ask for a 24 hour stoppage on uh, January the 29th a day that was deliberately chosen because I'm an Australian and I know people like a day off. Uh, it was effectively giving everybody a four day weekend. So I thought at one point, you know, people would probably appreciate the irony of that. Uh, but we were also trying to do it before the school children went back to school. It was a people free day as it turns out. Uh, so we were actually still trying to do the right thing by everybody and look after everybody and make sure that we could do what we could. Uh, as we know, uh, Opal Cards of course the introduction of Opal Cards has stopped us from being able to do one of the other things we used to be able to do and hurt the government in their back pocket by having a fair free day. And of course, we can't do that anymore. Yeah, no fine yeah, oh yeah, oh, we can still do those, I guess, but anyway. Um, and so then it was to the real extent then where we realised how much the rules were broken. Uh, so despite crossing every team, dotting every I, like I've said, 
The government was able to drag us into the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission ordered us to suspend our action. Uh, we were even forced to suspend our overtime ban. I mean, that's how serious it got. The argument that they ran in the Commission was that if, if we actually took that action, we were endangering people's lives. Inconvenience people? Yes, absolutely. But seriously, were we really going to endanger anybody's life? I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question. So quite clearly, the pendulum of fairness has swung too far in favour of the bosses. The rules are broken and the rules do need to be changed. And despite the fact that we did end up with an acceptable outcome for our members, there is no doubting that the power of the members was diminished by the decision by the Fair Work Commission. And there is no doubting that the situation in the New South Wales Railway showed that the right to strike in Australia is very nearly dead. So despite doing everything by the book, our bargaining power was taken away and workers who, aren't, who are just trying to earn a decent wage are being robbed of our rights. In spite of that situation, we still managed to get a deal that broke the government's 2.5% wages cap. But, and that was certainly no thanks to the current industrial system and the laws that, that prevail in it. And this is actually more about, more than actually the RTBU and the situation that Sydney Trains and New South Wales Trains workers were forced in. Because like Norm said, workers all over this state, all over this country, are being attacked in the way that we were and prevented from taking their, being able to take uh, their rights and actually take action to defend their own rights. So this actually impacts on every worker in the country. The rules in Australia are quite clearly broken and it affects every one of us in this room in one way or another. Even if you're retired, even if you're not in full-time employment, all of these rules and all of this, you know, if the, you have to have a status quo and the status quo is quite clearly being taken away from us. As we know, the UN describes the right to withdraw your labour as a basic human right but it's been taken away from us here in Australia. So when the pendulum swings too far one way, then we need to actually swing it back the other way and we need to take action to make that happen. Like I said, it's a basic right to withdraw your labour and if that's taken away from us, workers will always be negotiating with our hands tied behind our back. And when that actually happens, everybody suffers. Workers' wages in Australia are stagnant and the rules are definitely stacked in favour of the employer. And we've all seen what happens when people aren't getting decent wage increases. They're not spending money. They're not spending it in the shops. They're not going on holidays. We all know, and most of us aren't geniuses, but we've all been able to work out that people work and they get paid a decent wage. They spend money and they create an economy that we can all live in. So when a recalcitrant transport minister who is actively attacking the workforce and driving down the standards of our essential services can stop the workforce from standing up for their basic rights. Quite clearly the rules are broken and I think it's time that we all do what we can to fix them. Thank you very much.
was the sounds of silence by disturbed and earlier you heard Tracy Chapman talking about a revolution Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 Hello this is Bronwyn Logan with Community Notice Board The Blue Mountains branch of East Timor Sisters will host an open day at Dayspring Permaculture Garden at 85 Winborn Road, Hazelbrook on the weekend of 13th and 14th of April from 10 to 4. 
There will be talks by Jan Goodlett at 11 and 2. Entry is $10 or $5. Children are admitted free of charge, but no dogs are allowed. For information, phone 4758 6591. There will be a Swamp Care Weeding Day at the headwaters of the Gross River on Wednesday the 24th of April. Morning tea and lunch will be provided. To register phone 4787 2112 by the 18th of April. Opera Events is staging Mozart in the Mountains at Wentworth Falls School of Arts on Sunday the 14th of April at 2. There will be excerpts from Mozart's operas Don Giovanni, The Marriage of Figaro and The Magic Flute. Admission is $30 or $20 at the door or you can book by phoning 0406 975 4343. Registration is now open for the Academy Singers Paul Jarman workshop for children aged 9 to 16 on the weekend of May 18th and 19th at Falconbridge Public School. Attendees are eligible for the State Government Creative Kids $100 voucher. These are available from service.nsw.gov.au. Registration closes on the 30th of April. For information, go to academysingers.com.au. The annual Blue Mountains District Anzac Memorial Auxiliary Fete will be on Friday the 26th of April. Donations of clean clothes, books and bric-a-brac are now being accepted. For information or to organise pick-up, phone 4782-5765 or 0438-825-765. Gallery 188 at 188 Katoomba Street is exhibiting Landforms by Philip Russell. Also showing is There to Hear by Louise Holmes. The exhibitions run until the 14th of April. For details, phone the gallery on 4782-1900. The Lost Bear Gallery at 98 Lurline Street, Katoomba is exhibiting works that explore the role of the artist as a narrator of history by printmaker Judith Martinez. The exhibition runs until the 29th of April. For information, go to lostbeargallery.com.au. The Littleton Store Company at One Badgery Crescent Lawson is hosting an art exhibition that reflects farming and cultural change for the Candos School of Cultural Adaption. For information about the organisation, go to ksca.land. The exhibition runs until the 1st of May. The Blackheath Growers Market will be on Sunday the 14th of April from 8 to noon in the Memorial Gardens and Community Hall. There is a great range of seasonal fruit and vegetables and other food products available. For information, go to blackcastleevents.com.au. The Blue Mountains Group of the Embroiders Guild of New South Wales meets on the first Thursday of the month at 10 at the Grandview Hotel in Wentworth Falls. Everyone is welcome. For information, phone 4782-7594. If you would like your event publicised on Community Notice Board, you can email information to cnb891fm at gmail.com or via our website, rbm.org.au. This Easter, hop into Katoomba for an Easter egg hunt with a difference. Young Miss Marples and Hercule Poirot will be scouring Katoomba for clues to solve the Great Katoomba Basket Case. Where did Hoppy leave her basket of eggs? 17 letters of the alphabet have been hidden around Katoomba in store windows where Hoppy has left her paw prints. Find the letters, unscramble the, the clues and solve the mystery to go into a drawer to win some fantastic prizes including a family pass to Scenic World, high tea at Carrington, movie passes and shopping vouchers. The competition has been organised by a recently formed volunteer group of Katoomba Cafe and shop owners. One of, the, 
one of whose aims is to encourage more family and community involvement within the town. But this Easter, the activities are not just for budding detectives. Young Frieders, Van Goghs, Monets can enter a colouring in competition too and have their masterpieces displayed in store windows around town and have the chance to win vouchers from the artist store in Katoomba. Competition entry forms can be picked up wherever you see paw prints on the window. The competition is open now, so start chasing hobby paw prints and find those letters. So what got you involved in the Right to Strike campaign? Yeah, the Right to Strike campaign um, came about, well, firstly through my own experience as a unionist, but particularly it was a combination of the ACTU launching the Change the Rules campaign and Sally McManus uh, giving an interview on the 7.30 report where she said very clear this was just after she was elected mm. um, to lead the ACTU, and she said... You know, we will not be backing away from defending unions that take militant action and we, you know, support unions that break unfair laws and that, you know, laws should only be defended when they're just and when they're right. And the truth is the union movement, the history of that movement is a history of, of breaking, you know, bad laws. Anyone who doesn't support apartheid South Africa, anyone who does support Medicare, you know supports a history that broke broke bad laws. Um, so that was part of it. That was really inspiring and important. And then the other part was the Sydney train, um, Sydney train workers' strike being terminated in January last year by the Fair Work Commission because their strike was deemed to do too much economic damage to the to Sydney economy. And... To me, that showed that we have no right to strike yes, anymore. Right, Theirs yeah. was a protected action. Mm. That means it was legal. It was in their bargaining um, for their new agreement. Uh, it had been planned. It had been balloted for. It had been approved by the mm. Fair Work Commission, but they ruled against it. And to say that you can cancel a strike because it's, it causes too much economic damage is to say that the more effective a strike is, the more illegal it is, because yes. that's what a strike does. It yes. hits profits, it grinds the economy to a halt, and it shows who really has power. And so that's why we launched the yeah. Right to Strike campaign. So that was a kind of line in the sand, was it, for you? So is that why you have chosen that campaign in particular to concentrate on? Um, it was a line in the sand. I think it brought it to the attention of a much broader, like, section of the union movement. There was a sort of ripple through the union movement of, wow, it's, it's the laws have gone so far that even our protected actions now, there's that confidence by the bosses and the Fair Work Commission to rule those illegal. Um, in term, I think that opened the possibility to launch the campaign. The reason I think the campaign's so important is because without the right to strike, you know, we're fighting without weapons. Mm. As workers, that's where our strength lies. That's where our ability, ability to, you know, build our own power comes from. It means we don't have to rely on laws or rulings from the Fair Work Commission. We don't have to rely on bosses to do the right thing. We actually have a tool to defend ourselves, to organise ourselves. And I think historically that's where, where our strength has come from. Mm. 
What's the legal situation? Does the Fair Commission have ultimate say? Mm. Is there no legal recourse to... The laws are stacked very heavily against us. So that ruling was the law. The law at the moment says that the Fair Work Commission or, in fact, a minister, the Industrial Relations Minister, can terminate a strike if it will do, un, you know, excessive damage or whatever they say, like, to the economy to or to the uh, welfare of the population is another one. But those, those criteria are obviously highly subjective, highly open to interpretation. Oh, yes. In August last year, we had a politics in the pub about the right to strike, and Alex Classens of the RTBU spoke at that event. RTBU Industrial Officer Imogen Zuma also prepared a report for us. You can find a full copy of the report on our Facebook page in the notes section. She was unable to attend the meeting, so our Vice President and local member for the Blue Mountains, Trish Doyle, delivered the report to the meeting for us. The following is an excerpt of Trish's presentation of Imogen's report at the meeting. train driver and I often use that to stand in the parliament um, and to, to shout out at the Minister for Incompetence, you know, what have you got against workers? You know, or call him Minister for Incompetence or I know that I'm actually taking those real voices into the parliament and it's important even if I get called a, you know, a union rat bag or, you know, someone questioned as to why I'm there, that people like me who actually come from a working class background are in our parliament. Because I tell you what, it doesn't look like it's very representative of the people. And I feel proud to, to stand here on behalf of Imogen, uh, just run through some of what she put together about uh, the brief in regards to the suspension of the RTBU industrial action back in the, back at the beginning of the year. As, as has been pointed out, Imogen can't be, but she's, she's put some great work together and it's really important that we make sure this is recorded, this history is recorded in the books because as Alex has referred to, they often these conservative governments tell a different story to suit their own ends and they get some of the conservative media wrapped up mm. in that and all of a sudden you've got something out there um, that doesn't reflect the truth. Uh, so I'm pleased to just refer to a couple of bits and pieces in this in this brief. So you should have this uh, on your seat somewhere. So as Imogen says, from July 2017, after six months of enterprise bargaining between the combined uh, rail unions and Sydney, New South Wales, trains, um, RTBU members had voted in favour of taking uh, protected industrial action. And that is a really important step that people do come together and are able to do that in the first place because what we're seeing in workplaces is that's being challenged, even that, that the meeting mm. is being challenged. So uh, the RTBU had intended to commence an indefinite overtime ban from 25th of January 2018 and had 
the 24-hour work stoppage on the 29th of January. Um, as Alex said, there's a, a strategy in that day and what happened as a result of explaining that strategy as well and having good people on our railways explaining the need to stand up to bosses is that most people, most people jumped on board and thought, yep, there's something wrong with our railway, railway network, there's something wrong with the, with the timetable changes that were rushed through, there's something wrong um, with these people who aren't listening to the workers and not consulting with them. And people had already seen a rolling example of problems and so they stood, they stood with the RTVU, they stood with the workers. So I think that uh, the Minister for Incompetence was on the back foot uh, from that point. The ironically named Fair Work Commission is something we all need to keep an eye on as well, uh, in my view, given that they are tending towards agreeing with conservative governments around what actually is fair and unfair. So Imogen writes, sometimes the Commission does refuse the employer's attempts to suspend or terminate industrial action. And Alex referred to the Yarra trams in Melbourne case um, in respect to the four-hour stoppage. And the Commission found then that the action would undoubtedly affect the public, but there was no threat to the safety, health or welfare of the population. Now, fast forward to our case here, and Imogen writes, large, rich employers, which include the state in public sector cases, are at a significant advantage because they have the capacity to throw money into drowning the unions in expert evidence about the impact of industrial action. So some of the evidence put forward in the Sydney Trains case included evidence that up to an additional 160,000 cars could be used, could be on the road as a result of the action, evidence that the ability of essential services workers to get to work may be impeded, evidence that over one million customer journeys would not take place as a result of the stoppage, evidence from the Ministry of Health that the proposed stoppage would <coughs> result in service interruptions, including impacts to elective surgery, outpatient services, etc., etc. School students who weren't going to school that day will be late for school. <laughs> Sorry, Trish, just to clarify, yep. all of that, all of that um, uh, information was compiled in a 24 hour period, by the way. Was it? Mm, yes. From the time they called the emergency hearing to the time we suspended the action, they pulled they together that. A 20 page report from the New South Wales Trains and a 60 day page document on transport. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And uh, we might also point out that uh, Deputy, a bit, a bit senior, louder. Dep Deputy Senior Deputy Senior Deputy President Hamburger has also uh, had his industrial origins in Peter Reith uh, workplace relations. Oh, okay, so Hamburger and Reith. You know, dogs and balaclavas. Yeah. So uh, what I think is really important to take from this report is down the bottom of page two where the decision, Imogen writes, the decision of Senior Deputy President Hamburger in the Sydney Trains application threatens to pave the way for applications to terminate or suspend industrial action wherever it inconveniences large sections of the population. And given that the nature, we all know, the nature of industrial action is to leverage off the inconvenience caused, this restriction on industrial action threatens to significantly weaken our collective power in fighting for fair working conditions.
Imogen finishes off her report and I encourage you to read this and share it widely that this case, the Sydney Trans case, has again highlighted the broader need to change the rules. Those rules restrict our collective power and crucially the need to restore the right to strike. Will your campaign go beyond the election, say, in, in May? Yeah, the, I think a huge part of what we're trying to do with the Right to Strike campaign is actually organise people into a campaign that has a life beyond the election, and the union movement absolutely has to be independent from the Labor Party. We have to be, you know, we have to be willing to fight them on any issues that don't defend workers, and we can't forget the lessons from what happened after the Your Right to Work campaign, where there was a very, very strong union movement that threw out the Liberal Party and got rid of work cho choices and um, individual workplace agreements, but it basically wound down and didn't put enough demands on labour, didn't retain the organisation as well to actually continue, yes. continue to fight. I think it's about also having, keeping that infrastructure in place yes, to keep bringing people out on yep. the street, keep yep. organising people in you know, community union groups, in their workplaces. To me, is a huge question, what's going to happen in the, fir like the first lockout that happens after the election if Labor's elected? What's going to happen the first time the Fair Work Commission you know, finds a union or orders workers back to work? Are we going to say, well, Labor's in power, so never mind? Or are we going to say, we actually have to organise ourselves to fight this and put the ultimatum to Labor to support us when mm. we do it? Do you think there's been a kind of degree of complacency then with unionists perhaps or the general community thinking if there's a Labor government in power then we're fine? Yeah, I think a lot of ordinary people sort of have a bit of the memory of being disappointed after, you know, got rid of 11 years of Howard, got Labor, didn't go far enough ever since we've sort of been like switching from one mm. party to another, one Prime Minister to another. So I think in a way a lot of ordinary workers have sort of experience, have enough experience that you know, we're ready to hear we need to organise for ourselves. I think some of the dangers come from the, the, the campaign itself around Change the Rules, um, which, which is, you know, a fantastic and very important campaign, but it has focused a lot on marginal seats campaigning and it is sort of set up, a lot of the infrastructure is set up around a sort of electoral vision. So I guess my kind of question for the, the, the organisers of the Change the Rules is what sort of infrastructure is in place to continue to mobilise people after the election? Yeah. How, how are we going to make sure that it doesn't become another sort of your rights at work Yes, because you did make the point that we need rules that carry on from government to government mm. that, that aren't sort of dependent on which yeah. government's in power, yeah. Yeah, well I think that's the, partly the thing about the right to strike. Like, we had penalty rates, for example, use one example, we had penalty rates, this current Liberal government, or well, the Fair Work Commission actually ruled to cut the penalty rates, it was supported by the current Liberal, Liberal government, Labor's saying they'll bring them back, great, what if the next time we get a, yes. a coalition yes, they government, go they yeah. cut it again, yeah. like, yeah. What, are we just going to wait, and yeah. for, you know, it's, we yeah. need to be able to defend those things yeah. on the job ourselves, people yeah. have already lost money, I'm not sure that those people are that satisfied about hearing that, you know, yeah. well, Labor will bring them back.
back. It's like, what about all the money they've lost in the meantime? And I think there's also a general distrust in institutions and major parties, like, yeah, general distrust in the democratic system, really. Are you, and, and perhaps people are looking for an alternative, are you finding that just in your workplace generally? Yeah, I think people have a clearer sense of reality that there is that kind of sense that we have to rely on ourselves. I mean, my workplace is perhaps not the norm. <laughs> it's almost 100% union density on the wharves and people have that day-to-day -day experience of the union taking up issues on the job, not waiting. You know, we had to deal with a very serious safety incident last year. There was a collision. A woman was, you know, worker, warfare of ours, was thrown onto the wharf. She could have died, she ended up in a coma. Thankfully, she's recovered, but it exposed a huge number of safety issues that we had to fight. We refused to operate those machines for 16 days until those problems were fixed, and we got a lot of, a lot of improvements, and that was so important. But that's an example of the way that the Maritime Union organises people every day as these issues come up, and there is that sort of understanding and that culture that, you know, unless we do it, you know, no one else is going to do yeah. it for us. And so maybe it's a matter of sort of spreading some of those lessons further throughout the union movement. Well, that's great. And thank you. Um, is, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, just that the Right to Strike campaign, we do have a Facebook group, Right to Strike New South Wales, and one of the things that we're asking people to do is pass our motion um, in the, if you know, if they're a union member, in their union branch or any other passed in ALP branches for example, Greens meetings um, you know, trying to sort of start to build that groundswell that, you know, we do want the right to strike to be part of a major part yes. of the ACTU Change the Rules campaign and yeah. another part of the motion is to actually pledge to support workers that do break bad law, so mm -hmm. start to, you know, work within your organisations to discuss you know, okay, how are we going to get people down to picket lines or mm -hmm. do collections if there are workers that are defying the laws and coming under mm -hmm. under pressure, because yeah. I, I guess this is how I finish the, the talk inside, for me the ultimate goal is to get back if, if we had another Sydney Trains moment, we'd have a union movement that would come out and say, we will back you if you decide to actually defy those laws and go on yeah. strike anyway. We'll help you, you know, with a strategy for the fines. We're prepared to spread the strike and, you know, we'll stand behind you every step of the way. I think that's where we need to end up. Well, we've gone a little bit over time. We had a few different views expressed there. And it's now three minutes past nine. There is an election coming up on the 18th of May, so make sure you're enrolled. Your vote is valuable. Good night, and we'll see you next Thursday. Working folk don't have a chance unless we organise. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Tell me which side. you know what side you're on and they'll never keep us down come over to our side next thursday night at eight o'clock rights rorts and rants on radio blue mountains 89.1 fm which side are you on boys
which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say.